A happy Father's Day to all the dads in our midst. If there's any dads tuning in online, happy Father's Day to you. Maybe even my dad is, so happy Father's Day. Um, fatherhood's a gift from God. One of the very first relationships he created. And uh, there's a lot that comes with it. A lot of implications of being a dad. But we're thankful for the men who serve in that way, who give themselves for their families, for their spouses, to be that harbor of protection. I know as a dad, we do it imperfectly and in great weakness, having to rely on God. But we're grateful for that gift. Um, and after the service, there'll be a little uh, token of appreciation to you dads. But we are moving through our series in Isaiah, which I think is God has a great passage for us on a Father's Day Sunday on a Sunday when we had five young men baptized. What a beautiful thing. So if you would open to Isaiah chapters 11 and 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack right in front of you that looks like this. And you can find Isaiah 11 on page 575. 575. I'll be reading chapters 11 and 12 and I'd ask, Please, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. 
He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And Yahweh will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For Yah, Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy will you draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to Yahweh. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to Yahweh, for he's done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, our hearts are full of joy today as we see your work in these young men's lives, as we open your word and hear what you have to say to us. So even as Terry began with the many questions that we might come to a service with, we bring all of that to you. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to us, speak to us, open our hearts. Use my efforts to help us see what you're saying. And together we ask for the work of your Spirit in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if any of you feel like I just can't keep going. Weary from the world. We have this wonderful, beautiful world that God's made, and yet in its fallen state is a wearisome place. There's an old song that says, this world, uh, this world has nothing for us and yet everything I want. As we we walk through this world weary, often many of us wondering, can I keep going? God has a word for us this morning that is to help us lift our eyes up, lift our heads up so that we can see where it is that we're going 
and who it is that's taking us there. I love this prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of um, a dog that you're, you're wanting to give a treat to, and, and you tell the dog, sit and stay, and then you bring the treat somewhere. And that dog's sitting and staying, but, but flinching, because he wants that treat so bad, but he knows it's important to sit and stay. Prophet Isaiah is a little bit like that because he, he has a hard message for God's people. God says, you, you have to tell them about the judgment that's coming because of their stubborn sin. You have to tell them how the Assyrians are going to sack them and later the Babylonians are going to come and sack them and they're going to go off into exile. And he's like, okay, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. But Isaiah also is told about the future deliverance God's going to bring, the greater judgment and the greater salvation he's going to bring, the last day kingdom. And he wants to get to that. He wants to get to that. He wants to get to that. Not like Isaiah's against the ideas of God. This is actually how the Holy Spirit inspired the book to be written, where you, there's just this, this flinching eagerness to get after the treat. And so in the first major section of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 6, which are like the prologue where he's kind of saying, this is the course for the book, he gets to chapter 6 and he's like, I got to tell you about my vision, where I saw the holy God, saw my sin, and then he said, he took the tongues from the altar, and he, and, or the, the, the coal from the altar and said, your lips are clean. You got to know about this holy one of Israel who has forgiven me. And then chapter 6 ends with, and, and even though it's going to be reduced to a stump, there's going to be a little shoot coming out of the stump. And then the second major section of Isaiah, chapter 7 through 12, which is what we're ending today, this is the one that focuses on King Ahaz and the Assyrian threat and the prophetic messages to that. Well, all along the way, the dog's going, I got to tell you, I got to tell you. So in chapter 7, he's like, Okay, a, a virgin will conceive, be, will conceive and will bear a son, and the son will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So we hear this future king, God with us, that's coming, that's better than Isaiah, or better than Ahaz. And then in chapter 9, as Stephen preached for us, unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. The government will be upon his shoulders, and he's going to get rid of oppression and get rid of war. He'll be a wonderful counselor and he'll be mighty God. He's getting there, he's getting there. But now at the end, he just gets to unload. He gets to run after the trait and grab it. And so that's our passage here, the end of this second section, chapters 11 and 12. And Isaiah is just lifting our eyes up and saying, you gotta see what's coming. And he wants us to see four specific things. Four specific things. So that will be our sermon, working through the four things that Isaiah, that the Holy Spirit, wants us to see. And from chapter 11, verse 1, the first thing he wants us to see is God's method. God's method. So that's the first point. Just one verse, God's method. So there's a coming kingdom. Isaiah is telling us about it. What does it look like? What's his method for ushering in his kingdom? Do you see big military parades? Do you see someone riding on a big stallion? Do you see flags unfurled? Big kettle drums, boom, 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 fireworks. Psh, psh, psh. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit.
God's going to bring all this judgment. Assyria is going to come in. The northern kingdom completely wiped out. The southern kingdom all the way up to their neck. You don't even know where this is going yet. But future and a little later in Isaiah, the Babylonians are going to come in. and going to bring destruction upon the, the southern kingdom. Everyone's going to be in exile. Israel's going to be reduced, reduced, reduced. Even after the return from exile, there's just going to be the, they're going to be under the thumb of others. Eventually, the Roman Empire. There's going to be. It's just like it's just a little stump, beat up, nothing. And I think sometimes we can feel like our life is that stump. Like, you know, when I was 22 writing my life, or 18 or whatever age you write your life at, we write it all along the way, don't we? This is not what I thought it was going to look like. I don't know how I could be any use to God's kingdom. I'm just a beat up, hacked down, worn, useless stump. And if we feel any sense of that, we have to see God's method for bringing in his kingdom. He starts with a stump. And it's not just here in Isaiah. Even when he first chose the nation of Israel, in Deuteronomy 7, God says, it was not because you were more in number than the other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Paul would write later, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner as the worst of the sinners Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life James writes listen my beloved brothers has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him. In Isaiah 61, God talks about how he likes to take what is ashes and make something beautiful. How where there's mourning, he likes to take that and replace it with a beautiful headdress. When Jesus came and he was teaching his disciples, trying to help them understand the nature of his kingdom, what it's like, he's like, what's the smallest seed? A mustard seed that grows into a big plant. That's what my kingdom's like. Or think about baking. You just take that little bit of leaven, just that little bit, and you work it, and it spreads through the dough, and then you let it proof, and... This is the nature of God's kingdom. This is his method. From the beginning to the end of the story. And so be encouraged. You feel like you can't keep going? Life has beat you up pretty good? You feel like that stump or some semblance of it? Well, good. That's right where God wants us, because that's his method. 
something else God wants us to see. In verses 2 to 5 of chapter 11, see God's Savior. See God's Savior. Who is it that's leading us there, bringing us to our salvation, bringing us to that kingdom? Well, Isaiah still likes to use his Asianic clues, Isaianic clues, his little hints he gives along the way to say, this is what he's like, this is what he's like. But we know this is talking about Jesus. Spoiler alert. All the clues come together in Jesus perfectly. And as he's described, as this Savior is described, it's actually quite profound how he's described. God's very spirit rests upon him. And it says in verse 2, it's a spirit of wisdom and understanding. I've, uh, over the last couple years, had several moments when I was like, how do I keep going? It's been an experience I know, and probably some of you as well. It's been a hard two years. It's not just COVID. COVID exposes a lot of other things, right? What do you want in that moment when you're just like, don't even want to get out of bed today? Well, one thing you want is somebody who understands, someone who's wise. You just go and talk to. You have someone like that. It's such a gift in moments like that. You know what? God the Son took on flesh and he bore the frailty and the pain, the heartache of this world. He knew all that we could know, abandonment, poverty, rejection, strife, heartache, abuse, slander. And and God's word says that the reason he endured those things is so that we'd have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness. And yet, in the midst of that, provide wisdom. We have in Christ someone we can turn to who's wise and understanding. It says that it's a spirit of counsel and might. That means he he can make good plans, and then he has the strength to implement those plans. You think about the political seasons and politicians running for office And even the noblest politicians, they make all these, this is what I'm going to do to fix the economy. This is what I'm going to do to address COVID. This is what I'm going to do to strengthen healthcare. Or you middle class family who's suffering paycheck to paycheck, this is what I'm going to do so you're not suffering anymore. And they have these plans, right? They have their counsel. And then they get elected and they realize, I'm not as strong as I think I am. I can't do all this stuff. Well, we can question which plans are the wisest plans, which councils are the wisest councils, but for this coming Savior, his plans are wise in understanding, and he has the might to implement his plans. It'll be a good kingdom. And then it says, 
He has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. His delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. That's just shorthand for saying he really trusts Yahweh. Maybe you could take someone who's a a big fan of Lord of the Rings. You say, she's a fan of Lord of the Rings. Or you could say, she has read every book in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit multiple times. She's memorized a map of Middle Earth. She basically knows the language Sindarin, the elves. She's watched all of the movies extended cut multiple times. It's a longer way of saying she's a big fan of Lord of the Rings. And so you could say, he trusts Yahweh, or you could say, he has a spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. His delight is in the fear of Yahweh. This is one who's looking fully to the Heavenly Father and being directed by his spirit all the way. Not his own wisdom, not his own might, but the spirit of the Lord. As we're meeting this Savior and and, and getting a chance to see him and see what he's like, the first descriptions come as the Spirit comes upon him in pairs, kind of rapid-fire succession. But the last one, we slow down and we linger over what's being said. Look at what it says. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. It's all dealing with the same basic description of him. There's few things that will suck your energy, your drive to keep going than injustice that isn't addressed. A wrong done to you that just lingers and hangs in the air without the scales of justice being balanced. Talk about the great gift of fathers on Father's Day. Maybe as a father, you feel estranged from your children unjustly. Or maybe as a child, I mean, a child, you're an adult, but thinking of your own father, you know how much his failures have hurt you. Or maybe there are other horrible things. Maybe you've been abused in ways you've never told anybody. Maybe people have slandered you. And you feel powerless to be able to do anything to fix it, to make it right. Because of the people who did it, or because of the nature of the situation, just shrivels you up, affects all of life. And here we're told 
that this Savior who's coming, God's Savior, It's not just the things that are on the surface that you can see and hear. He knows it all. It's all laid bare. Every secret thing, it's all exposed. All the horrible things that people thought they could get away with that have been done to you or maybe even that you've done are laid bare. And he comes and he will balance the scales of justice. The poor who feel like I have no voice, I'm taken advantage of, and there's nothing I can do, God will stand up for them. His Savior will come. The meek of the earth who feel like, ah, I'm not the one who can assert myself and fight back, he will fight for them. He'll stand up with a rod in his mouth and he's coming He's coming to make things right. He's coming, up to st- coming to stand up for justice. I haven't seen the movie, but sometimes when I think of a great warrior, I think of the old Rambo. The ammo hanging from his shoulders like sashes. You know, it's hanging from this Savior's shoulders. What's his belt? Faithfulness. Righteousness. Lift your head up. This is who's leading us. This is our Savior. This is God's Savior. See Him. The third thing Isaiah wants us to see from verses six to nine is to see God's kingdom. See God's kingdom. You know, we're so accustomed to living in a sin-stained, fallen world that it's hard for us to even get our minds around just how pervasive the effects of our rebellion against God are. It's hard to imagine what a world could be that's truly free from all the stains of sin and the far-reaching implications of us severing our relationship with our Creator. If we were to write out, you know, what world do you want to imagine? What, what grown-up Christmas list world do you want? And we were to make it down. We couldn't even begin to, to put it down, what it could actually be. But listen to this description. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. There's a peace that comes, a harmony that comes. It goes even beyond brother to brother, parent to child, friend to friend, nation to nation, but it goes all the way down to you got a fattened calf and a lion. 
together. It's, it's pervasive harmony. And do our hearts not long for that kind of peace? After the, the wars of the last couple of years over COVID, but all over all sorts of other things where we're finger pointing, accusing others, blaming others, strife. It's true at a global level, at a national level, but it also is true at a personal level where we experience estrangement from those we love. I mean, even the healthiest family in this room has probably known a fair amount of strife in the last week. I mean, it's just pervasive. And our hearts long for that peace and that wholeness. Even our own bent hearts that, are, that contribute to the discord, that are part of the problem, even these hearts long for that harmony. You think of the day when Isaiah was prophesying where there had just been a civil war. As, as Judah was invaded by Ephraim, the northern tribes, and they came in and they were at war with one another. And God's saying, I'm not even, I could have said that. Ephraim and, and, and Judah will be at peace. In fact, he's going to get there later in chapter 11. But here he's like, no, it goes even beyond that. This is a peace that affects all of creation. And we long for that, don't we? You want to know where we're headed? Lift your heads up. Let's lift our heads up and see that the strife that weighs us down so much is not going to be the eternal reality. It's not the kingdom that God will usher in ultimately. I said there were four things that Isaiah wanted us to see. So we've seen God's method. We've seen God's savior. We've seen God's kingdom. And last, we get to see God's heart for people. Chapter 11, verses 10 through 16. God's heart for people. After describing this beautiful kingdom, the last thing he says about the kingdom is it's not just, oh, it's going to be peace and harmony because everyone's going to just be good and want to be good. It, that, that comes through the knowledge. You see that at the end of verse 9? Through the knowledge of Yahweh filling the earth. It's as we know Yahweh like the Savior knew Yahweh and feared him. It's, it's that knowledge of him that will shape, that will allow that kind of peace. And so now he says, all right, verse 10, in that day, there's going to be this signal that goes up. You know, like the bat signal, right? Everyone can see it. Whoop, whoop, whoop. There's going to be a signal that goes up. What's the signal going to be? Back to the stump. A little branch. Jesse is going to come up from backwater Bethlehem. Born, conceived out of wedlock. Born in a Feeding area for animals, announced by shepherds of all things. And this one's going to be the one announced, a star in the sky, people from the east coming 
Even kings hearing about it, his gospel going out into all the earth, this is the signal that's going to be raised. Why? Because it's for all nations. You need to know that this kingdom, I was like, this kingdom is not just for Israel. It's for everybody. The nations are going to come and inquire of him. They're going to seek the knowledge that he provides. And there will be rest, a glorious rest in his dwelling place, in his abode. Because his heart is for all the nations. Which includes, includes his people Israel, as we'll see in verses 11 to 16, a second in that day. And here he says there's going to be a, a true and better return from exile. And the emphasis in verses 11 to 16 is not, you know, in 10 it's all the nations. Here it's all of the remnant. Not one will be left out. So when you read that list that I had to get through in verse 11 with all those place names, well, when you're thinking exile, yeah, you think maybe Egypt or Assyria, but you don't think a lot of those places. In fact, when it gets to the coastlands of the sea, no historians have found record of, of Israel being in exile there. He's like, it's like he's saying, everywhere on the earth, no matter where they are, I'm not going to leave one, not one stone unturned. Every single person's coming back. And then verse, verse 12, he's like, it's a signal for the nations, but he's also assembling the banished of Israel. Now remember the remnant he's talking about. We saw in chapter 10, this remnant are those who have trusted wholly in Yahweh. So it's not just anyone who's ethnic Israel, but it's those of Israel who've trusted in Yahweh, leaned on him and are trusting then in the Savior he brings. But there's, there's a day coming when all people, not one will be missed. Every single one. And you see that emphasis as you go in, in verse 13. Obviously, we see that jealousy and that war being undone as the remnant comes together. We see that in, as God does that, he's going to have to conquer his enemies. But then the picture at the end is like a picture of a new exodus. God's going to it's not just separate the Red Sea. It's like the whole of Egypt. The waters are just going to be divided. So you can just put sandals on and go for a walk. There's going to be a highway opened up from Assyria as the people pour in to his perfect forever kingdom. Now, theologians debate a little bit. Is this fulfilled? When exactly is this fulfilled? Is it when Jesus first comes and establishes a millennial reign? Or is it fulfilled when Jesus ultimately comes and declares victory over the whole earth and establishes a new and perfect eternal heavens and earth? And I think debating that here might not be helpful because it's all moving in that same future direction and ultimately be fulfilled when Jesus comes regardless of whether it's that millennium reign or both. I think it's both, just so you know. But I think what I want us to, what Isaiah wants us to see is how none are left behind. God's heart for every single individual of the remnant to be his own. And I think of stories Jesus told when he was here. There's one story where a father um, has his son reject him and leave, pursuing the ways of this world instead of the ways that his son or this father is trying to teach him. We, we, we hear about the son, Jesus tells about the son and all the ways he squanders his life, 
He finally comes to his senses like, maybe, maybe I can go back to dad. And when he comes back, the picture of his dad, he's like standing, staring at the horizon. He's waiting. When's my son coming back? When's my son coming back? It's God's heart. There's another picture that Jesus gives, another story he tells of a, of a shepherd. He's got 100 sheep in his care. He's walking around with 100 sheep. And he notices that there's one missing. I don't know a lot about sheep. Maybe shepherds can intuitively just look at a number and see that's 99, not 100. But it seems like that'd be a hard thing to notice. He notices the one that's missing. I got 100, it's okay, 99 will do, that one's stupid anyways. No, Jesus says, the good shepherd goes after that one and picks him up and brings him back to the flock. There might be some in this room that you come to church and you're like, I'm an outsider here, this isn't me, I don't belong. And now here, God has before you a picture of his heart. He's saying, I don't care what it is that causes you to feel like you're an outsider. You don't belong here. My heart's for you. I want you to come. I want you to know the goodness of this kingdom and this Savior. I want you to be part of the stump kingdom. He's inviting you this morning to come and embrace the root of Jesse. Backwater Bethlehem, the one who would bring in God's kingdom by dying on the cross for our sin and then rising from the dead. You're welcome. And all here need to know that is God's heart for all peoples, and that includes you. I mean, this is, this is beautiful. If we can see this, if we can see what Isaiah is giving us, it will cause us to lift our heads and to see where we're headed, what God's doing in this world, who's leading us there. We see his method. We see his savior. We see his kingdom. We see his heart for people. It's glorious. How do we respond? How do we respond to that? Well, chapter 12 tells us how we respond. In verses 1 to 3, we sing for joy because we've been saved. You know, I talked when, I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when we saw that picture of, of, of the Savior exposing all deeds and how we rejoice that there's a vindication. I also said he exposes our evil deeds. And earlier when we were in chapters 9 and 10, we saw that God is, uh, his angry hand is not turning from Israel because they're remaining stubborn in their sin. And, and there's this issue like, okay, I want all that, but I'm actually, if I'm honest, even me who's poor or meek or whatever, it was a stump. I'm part of the problem. 
And here they're rejoicing because though they had God's anger upon them, now suddenly somehow it's been turned away and they get to know the salvation. And so they're rejoicing in the salvation they've received. And that's a bit of a mystery that Isaiah doesn't solve for us until Isaiah 53 when he talks about one who's going to come and take our sin upon himself so that God's wrath could be turned away from us and we could know his comfort instead. But here, we just know it's going to happen. All of that glorious stuff that's coming, I get to know if I run to Jesus. And how do we respond? With songs of joy, celebrating the salvation we receive, though we are wandering in the desert, with our hearts starved and weak. That's 12, 1 to 3, our response. Um, do you guys ever sing in round, like row, row, row your boat, and then someone else starts singing row, row, row your boat when you're in the middle of singing your row, row, row your boat? And you're like, that doesn't work, but it somehow does. There's two songs being sung here. There's a, a heavenly round being sung. And this is, this is what happens when we, when we get our heads up. We trust Yahweh. Our fear's gone. We're trusting in him. There's two songs we want to sing. And the first song, verses 1 to 3, is just a song of rejoicing. Thank you, God. I rejoice in my salvation. There's a well of salvation that brings joy that's unending. But there's a second song in verses 4 to 6. And this is a song that longs for all the peoples to know the same joy and same salvation. And this is the round that gets sung in the Christian's heart, rejoicing in the celebration we have and wanting others to know the same God and to bring glory to the same God and announce the goodness of that God because they have tasted that same joy. You'll notice, actually, the songs we sing in church, there's two different kinds of songs we sing. One is a song to God, thanking him or crying out to him, but it's directed to God. The other is toward each other and toward the world, saying... Let's sing. Let's remind each other the great things God's done. And really, that should be our song wherever we go in life. I'm rejoicing in what I have, and I want others to know it. It's the heavenly round being sung. So that's how we respond. If we're able to lift our eyes up and see all that God's doing, where he's taking us, who's leading us there, then our song will be this heavenly, heavenly round of of praising God for his salvation and a song that wants others to know the same salvation. The heart that God has for all peoples becomes our heart. And just as that first section of Isaiah 1 to 6 ended with the Holy One of Israel, holy, 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 this section ends. The second section ends with us praising and all the nations praising the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. God of Father's Day brings many different emotions. We can feel proud or we can feel like we don't measure up. We can feel bitter because of the dad we had or so thankful because of the dad we had. We can 
have horrible memories conjured up or we can have sweet memories conjured up. We can feel guilty because as a dad, we, the last thing we want is to spend time with our kids this day or we can feel full of joy because we love the time we have with our kids. There's just so many different feelings in a room like this. Our world's beautiful and yet fallen and it's weary as a result, wearisome as a result. Some in this room can feel like we just, how do we keep going? I don't know if I can. Some are getting along fine, but realize it's still hard. For all of us, wherever we are, use this sermon in our hearts to get our eyes off of our present circumstances and on to where we're going and what you're doing, who's leading us there that we might have hope, that we might endure, we may not fear but trust and know your comfort. Help us to behold the Holy One of Israel and rejoice. In Christ's name, amen.